It is very, very good to be with you all this morning, be here in this building with you. Uh, we're having an absolute blast downtown. We've got some great folks. We've got a great building. We're really, really ready to launch in two weeks. Even though we're having a really great time with you, or a really great time there, being here with you is like coming home. We've often used kind of the illustration of uh, a high school graduate going off to college, and if that's true, then we've been gone about three months. If you went to college, went away, maybe you remember the feeling of coming home for Thanksgiving break or something, and just walking into your mom and dad's house, and it just feels warm and right. And being here with you this morning just feels warm and right. In case you missed Ryan's welcome, my name is Nathan Sherman. I was the youth pastor here for four years, uh, and now we are two weeks away from officially launching Christ Church downtown. Uh, and it's so great to realize that I have to introduce myself because there are a few faces here that I don't recognize, which is great. God is continuing to build this church, uh, and we're thankful for that. One year ago, at this same Missions Emphasis Sunday, I preached on church planning, and we looked through the book of Isaiah, as it was always God's intention to fill the earth with his presence by inhabiting, not just as he did in the Old Testament, a stationary, fixed building on this Mediterranean strip of land, but in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that he would inhabit individual and mobile temples all over the earth as he does in his people. That's why we plant churches. That's why we send missionaries to the far reaches of the planet, that God might fill more of the earth with his presence, that there might be, just as Ryan prayed a few minutes ago, that there might be more worship of him where there is not presently. So that's why in this time anyway, rather than adding more services or, build, or starting a building campaign, uh, Desert Springs would just rather plant more churches, have more gospel outposts where there are currently not any, rather than just building one big building bigger and bigger on itself. So this morning we're going to stay in the Old Testament. We're going to continue to look at the mission of God to save the nations but we're going to take a look at a guy who's one of the worst missionaries of all time, the, the anti-missionary, the example of what not to be. And yet, as I think we'll see, someone who is more like us than we'd like to admit. Jonah. That's near the back of the Old Testament in your Bibles, right before Micah. It's two ahead of Amos, if you can find that one. It's a, little, a, a bigger one there. You can flip two more to your right and you likely know the narrative pretty well, so we're not going to read the entire four chapters here this morning, but we're going to ask three questions as we go through some of this text together. We're going to ask, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about the kingdom of God through the book of Jonah? We'll kind of bounce around back and forth to these questions, but hopefully come up with several answers to each question. First of all, what, what do we learn about God? The very first thing that we learn about, even in these first two verses of the book is that he cares for the nations. I'm not going to read the entire story here, but we'll just read some stuff to understand what's going on. So right away, these first two verses we read, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this isn't the first time that we've been introduced or heard from this Jonah, the son of Amittai. In 2 Kings 14, we read that God used Jonah to preach to the king of Israel and to restore some of the borders of the northern kingdom. We've heard from him before. He's a well-known prophet of God. He's someone who speaks 
for God. So we aren't entirely surprised in verse 1 when the word of the Lord comes through him. This probably happens somewhat regularly. But what isn't regular, though, is the audience to which God is calling him to preach his word to. Jonah is probably used to preaching repentance to Israel, God's chosen people, but now God is calling him to preach repentance to Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Nineveh is bad, bad news. In the British Museum of History, there are reliefs, there's uh, sculpted wall pictures of Assyrian kings, they're ruling from Nineveh, Nineveh, and these kings have taken their enemies, those who they have conquered, and put hooks in their noses and dragged them through the streets of Nineveh, then hanging them from the walls, from their noses, and skinning them alive. They would take their conquered peoples and put them in the walls of their city that they are building and build the walls around them, burying these captives alive. And no doubt Jonah knew of this. We're still about 100 years away from Assyria destroying Israel, but they were already beginning to pester. They were already beginning to pillage Israel's borders. And even if they had not yet begun a full conquest, the threat of a looming Assyrian conquest had to be on every Israelite's mind. Every morning will this be the morning when I look over the horizon and see the Assyrian storm approaching to destroy us. I was having a bit of trouble coming up with a modern-day equivalent, but it might be like a modern-day Iraqi Christian who is sent into the heart of ISIS headquarters. This guy probably has friends and family who has been murdered by ISIS. He at least has seen their videos and knows of what they intend to do to him. He's probably always worried about them coming and abducting them, perhaps beheading him. And perhaps this is a decent parallel because ancient Nineveh is very close to the modern Iraqi city of Mosul, which is under ISIS control, or if you've been watching the news, perhaps only for a few more days. But this is the city, Nineveh, the bloody city, as Nahum calls it, the bloody city that God calls Jonah to go preach to, to urge repentance, to urge worship in the one true God. And the placement of this book Couldn't be more important for us. If you're reading straight through the Minor Prophets and you've read the book just before Jonah, you've read through Obadiah, which is all about the judgment of the nations. You might be reading Obadiah and read through that book and think, yes, God, go do it. Go judge the nations and wipe them from the face of the earth, which he will. But when we turn the page over, we read, just in the first two verses of the very next minor prophet, that God does not just desire judgment, he is also desiring of their repentance. He wants to send Jonah to Nineveh because he is patient. While they are indeed his enemies, he desires their repentance and he desires their worship. So John 3 is right, that verse that perhaps most of us know so well, that for God so loved the world, the nations of the world that he sent his son gave him that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world, the nations, even the Ninevehs, that they might be saved through him. Jesus came so that the nations might be saved and brought into right relationship 
with God into his kingdom, but this is not new with Jesus. God promised Abraham that through his seed, all of the nations of the world would be blessed, and God has been doing that since Genesis 12. And now we're going to see that explode after Jesus' resurrection and ascension of the nations being brought in to his kingdom. But God is showing his love and his care for all people, even his Ninevite enemies here in Jonah. We see this little glimmer, this little glimmer of a future move, of a move from not just the come and see mode of evangelism of the Old Testament to a go and tell mode of evangelism in the New Testament to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. But if this is what we learn about God, that he cares for the nations, what do we learn about ourselves? We learn that immediately we are disobedient. In verse 2, God calls Jonah to rise and go to Nineveh. And in verse 3, Jonah does indeed rise, but he goes to Tarshish. We're not entirely sure where Tarshish is, but most scholars think that it's probably in modern-day Spain. In other words, the complete opposite direction which he ought to have been going. Perhaps we could be tempted to think that Jonah is afraid. After all, if you were an Iraqi Christian, walking into ISIS headquarters might be a pretty scary thing. But Jonah himself will tell us in chapter 4 why he went to Tarshish, and it wasn't because he was afraid. We'll find out the real reason why he headed west in that chapter, but for now, we just know that he's trying to flee from the Lord's presence. He doesn't want anything to do with God or this mission to Nineveh. And you know the story. While out somewhere in the Mediterranean, a huge storm comes and is threatening to destroy this ship, and Jonah, in his attempt to run from the Ninevite Gentiles, is being consistent. He is sinfully uh, and seem, uh, disregarding the Gentile idolaters who are above board. He's in his bed. He's away from the men who are working their tails off to keep this boat afloat. And he doesn't care if the ship goes down. He doesn't care if he goes down, and he certainly doesn't care if these men go down with it. But finally, they find him out. And Jonah tells him that the storm is his fault, and if they'll just throw him overboard, the storm will end. They try to row into land, but the water gets worse, and finally they pray to God to forgive them for what they are about to do, and then they throw him into the sea. And the storm immediately stops. And we get to what sure seems like a conversion of some Gentiles here in Jonah 1. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, not just any God, but the covenant name of God, Yahweh. They feared him and sacrificed to him. And while admittedly we can't read Jonah's tone of voice when he tells them to throw him overboard, it sure seems like he's like this depressed emo kid who hates his parents and just sits in his room sulking all day. Even as he's sinking to the bottom of the sea, he's still seemingly rolling his eyes and just, I uh, hate you, Dad. Uh, but this is the second thing that we learn about God from the book of Jonah. That God is merciful. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now all I have to say is that I am glad that I am not God. Not only would I have not his concern for the nations, but I'm quite sure that I would be done with this petulant child, and I would have just let him sink to the bottom of the sea. 
Thankfully, though, God will continue to use petulant sinners to accomplish his purposes. Another interesting thing about this scene is that we have a second character who is obedient to God. We first had some Gentile sailors who obeyed God and then feared him and worshipped him. But now we have a fish or a whale or whatever this thing is, and we could maybe even call the fish the third obedient character if we want to include the storm, which came and was at peace at God's command. This is an underwater and an upside-down story. Those who we would expect to trust and obey God don't, and those that we would not expect to trust and obey God do, and do so quickly and gladly. All of creation is responding and obeying God, while God's prophet, God's man, is not. And yet, God is merciful. He could have, and he would have been right to just let Jonah sink and die, just like he would have been right to let Nineveh sink and die, like he would have been right to let Israel sink and die, like he would have been right to let the world and you and I sink and die but he doesn't. He intervenes, he initiates, and he saves despite despite Jonah's rebellion. Now chapter two is a bit different than the rest of the book. It reads like a psalm, it's poetry. Chapter two, verse one sets it up. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, and then he reflects on the bigness, about the greatness of God, even about his salvation. No, interestingly enough, he never really repents throughout this. He never recognizes his, his disobedience and confesses this sin to the Lord. But then after spending three days in this underwater tomb, in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, whenever the Lord speaks, creation obeys. So even though he never actually repents, Jonah is seemingly a new man. He pulls himself up from the sandy beach, he Pulls the seaweed out of his hair and perhaps empties his pockets of crabs and seashells and then whistles his whole way to Nineveh uh, because God has been so good to him. It seems. So we might think. He gets to Nineveh and preaches maybe the shortest sermon in the Bible. Eight words in English but only five in Hebrew. He seemingly walks through the gates, gets an audience, and then says in verse 4 of chapter 3, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now pretend you don't know where this story is going. You've never read this book. You don't, you've never seen the felt board in your Sunday school class. What would you expect to happen? Well, I'll tell you what should happen. We've seen this before in the book of Amos. We've got a small town country boy who is called to go into the big city of Samaria. This would be like a young farmer boy, perhaps from Berlin or something, who is who walks up to Albuquerque, walks into the city, and urges the city to repent. And if you know your Old Testament prophets, that didn't go well for Amos. Samaria wanted to run Amos out of town very quickly and even kill him. Well, if Samaria is Albuquerque, Nineveh is New York City. We've already seen this story. It's not going to go well. For Jonah, We should expect, at best, Nineveh to send Jonah packing for them to pick him up and throw him out the gate, wipe their hands off, laugh a bit at this silly guy. But at worst, we should expect the Ninevites to put hooks in his noses, or in his nose, drag him through the street, hang him, and skin him alive just for the fun of it. 
That's what we should expect. But what happens? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And not only that, continuing verse 5, they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king, the people, Even the beasts, the cows, and the animals, along with the fish and everything else we've seen in this book, are obeying the Lord. Now, we don't know how deep this repentance went. Israel herself went through periods of repentance to only find herself uh, engrossed in sin quickly after. But here is this Assyrian king, along with many other Gentile kings and queens throughout the Old Testament, at least recognizing Yahweh as the Lord and God of all peoples and all nations. He is great and greatly to be praised above all other gods because he alone is God. The nations will worship him, and we see this in Jonah. What did Nineveh deserve? They deserved the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserved the wrath that God had promised. They deserved what they actually will receive about a century later when, they, when the Assyrian Empire is completely destroyed and we won't see or find their ruins of the city of Nineveh until just about 150 years ago when archaeologists finally found this huge city. But in this time and with this generation, God is pleased with their worship. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He desires them to live. He desires them to love him and to love others, just as he did with Israel, just as he did with Jonah. But this we'll see Jonah is completely oblivious to. Now this is a good story. It follows the the arc of good storytelling that we all know and just intuitively like so well. There's conflict, there's resolution, there's happy times, God calls on Jonah, Jonah runs and disobeys, God saves Jonah out of his rebellion, Jonah seems to finally obey God, God saves Nineveh out of their rebellion, they repent, they worship God, and they all live happily ever after, except for that pesky little chapter four, which is really, really difficult for us to understand. But in fact, I think chapter four helps us understand and interpret the first three Shockingly, we read this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What was it? What was it that displeased Jonah? Well, what came just before in chapter 4? Not only Nineveh's repentance, but specifically that God relents, that he is merciful on Nineveh. Which gets us to the last thing that we learn about ourselves in Jonah. We learn that we are utterly and hopelessly self-centered. Jonah is now going to tell us why this has made him so angry and in fact why he ran in the first place. He didn't run to Tarshish because he was afraid. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, 
O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah has just gone full emo. He's like some combination of a big mohawk and guy liner and miserableness. Uh, but before we completely condemn him here, What's going on? Why would he respond in this way? Anger and just wishing he could die. Perhaps we can think about it like this. Three or four years ago, Trent asked us, what if you, just, what if you got a phone call a few minutes from now finding out that your mom or your dad had been killed by a drunk driver? Or you received news that your brother or your sister your spouse, your son, or your daughter was killed by a drunk driver. How would that make you feel? And then, what if you found out that this guy had quite a history of driving under the influence? He'd been arrested four or five times. He'd even spent time in jail for driving under the influence. He just got out of jail, went to the bar, got drunk, got in his car, and hit and killed your daughter. What would you think about that guy? And then, what if four or five years from now, you find out that this man had evidently professed faith in Christ. He'd become a Christian while he was in prison. How would that make you feel? My guess is you, at least initially, would not like it. This man who was so negligent and selfish, who has caused so much pain and loss in your life and perhaps in the lives of many others. People like that are somehow undeserving of God's grace. Especially in comparison with you. You've always kept the rules. You've always tried to honor God. You've done a bunch of good stuff in your life and you've kept yourself from doing from a bunch of bad stuff. Well, now I think we're beginning to understand Jonah. He knew, he knew that God would forgive Nineveh if they repented. He quotes Moses from Exodus 34. He says, God, you are gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. He uses God's words about himself as an insult to God. Those great things about you, I hate them. In fact, I hate grace. He knows well of Assyria. He knows that they are imperial and genocidal maniacs. And they're out to conquer and destroy any land and power competitors in the region, of which Jonah and Israel are. He thinks of himself as being deserving of God's favor because of who he is and what he's done, while Assyria is not being deserving of God's favor at all. With this understanding, we can understand much of what we've read before. His throw-me-overboard encouragement to the Gentile sailors isn't some like selfless and sacrificial move. It's not like, guys, this is all my fault. If you'll just do this, you, you can live. No, it's probably actually like, oh great, if they'll just throw me overboard, this is finally a way out. Finally a way out for me to die and not have to go to Nineveh. He likely wasn't whistling from the beach all the way to Nineveh. He's probably got his hands in his pockets and kicking rocks angrily all the way there. 
His short sermon in Nineveh doesn't include any mention of what they've done wrong, any mention of God or even his goodness. He's like a street preacher who comes into the scene, not offering any compelling or persuasive reason to trust and believe in God, only a cursory, you're all going to hell, hoping seemingly that his short and angry sermon will somehow short circuit their repentance, that God might not forgive them because of the way he preaches to them. Jonah's story reminds me so much of one of Jesus' parables, Matthew 20, commonly titled The Workers in the Vineyard, or perhaps better titled The Generous Landowner. Perhaps you know it. In that parable, a landowner hires some guys to work for him. He hires them in the morning, and he gives them a generous wage. He promises them a generous wage. Then he hires some more workers at lunch, and then some more workers in the afternoon, and then some more workers one hour in the evening before quitting time. And he pays these 11th hour workers first, the ones hired at the end of the day. And he pays them the full day's wage. So the others think that they're going to get paid more because they've worked longer. But the landowner eventually pays them all the same wage. Now the problem with this parable, the problem we kind of like to avoid it, honestly, is because we don't like it. We don't like that parable. And you know why we don't like that parable? Because we immediately put ourselves in the position of the full 12-hour all-day workers. We don't think it's fair that the guys who show up at the end of the day get paid the same as the guys who worked all day. The 12-hour workers worked hard. They should get more, we say. And we say that because we automatically put ourselves in that category of working hard rather than the category of the 11th hour undeserving workers who are shown nothing but grace. We assume that God owes us because of what we've done. We have close to impeccable church attendance. We tithe well and generously. We read our Bibles. We take care of our front lawns. We've never cheated on our taxes, and we always vote for the right candidate. So it's actually not fair that those who have these death row conversions get the same payment that we get. But if Jonah was realistic about his position, as, and as we'll see, if we were realistic about our position, we, he and we would realize that he, just like Israel that he represents, are not at all the, the 12-hour workers who are owed much. Just look at Israel's history. Just look at the chapters just before we saw Jonah in 2 Kings, it isn't good. Israel is just as deserving as God's ju- of God's judgment as Nineveh was, just as in need of his grace, of his kindness and forgiveness. Jonah doesn't realize that he is utterly undeserving of any kindness from God at all. He thinks that he has been an all-day hard worker who is owed much, much more than those hired at the end of the day. Jonah hates grace. He, he wants to get what he has owed. He wants to earn it. And he wants those whom he thought hadn't earned it to earn what he thought that they were owed. Judgment. The thing is, though, if you get ruffled by the murderer who repents, or if you'd never consider sharing the gospel with that coworker who's just so brash and cocky, you'd never share the gospel with a person of that race, of that ethnicity, of that religion that just gets you so angry rather than compassionate. 
you never consider showing kindness to someone who stands on the corner of a street because he's lazy, then you are no better or no different than Jonah. If we have no concern for the unbelieving people around us or those in other parts of the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, then we are no better than Jonah. We certainly don't share the missionary heart of God who desires worship from all peoples, from every color, from every language, and he, wants to des- he desires to save those from every religion of the world into the true and right worship of himself. This is Jonah and this is us. We know verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 front to back, through and through, and yet do you see how quickly in our hearts we, like Jonah, turn verses like those into, for it is by works that I am saved, through effort. And this is my doing, not a gift of God, but a result of my works so that I might, bo- that I might boast. This is what we actually believe to be true in our hearts. But this is not the gospel and it is not how God saves sinners. In light of God's holiness, Israel and Nineveh are on equal ground. And yet, even after personally experiencing God's mercy countless times and then seeing God's amazing grace acted on some of the most violent and bloodthirsty humans in all of history, Jonah is still self-centered. After the people repent, Jonah goes up onto a hill overlooking Nineveh, and it appears that Jonah is kind of camping out and hoping that their repentance wasn't real. He's kind of hoping still for the Sodom and Gomorrah fireworks show. So he's up there, and he gets really hot. God provides a plant for shade, and the plants are obeying. And for the first time in four chapters, Jonah is glad. He's exceedingly glad, even, in verse 6. Not at seeing repentance and salvation, not at being saved from a watery death by some miracle fish. No, no, just because he's not sweating as much. But then, like the the plant, like the fish, like the cows, the sailors, the Ninevites, a worm obeys God and destroys the plant, and Jonah goes full emo again. But God said to Jonah in verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Like, it sounds really dumb and ridiculous to read this quote, right? Like, you have to read that in the tone that I just read it, right? Like, it's really ridiculous. But how many times have you thrown a spiritual fit when you selfishly didn't get exactly what you wanted because you thought you deserved it? Because I've kept the rules I deserve better because they have not kept the rules they deserved worse. I deserved better grades than her. I deserved the promotion, not him. I deserved more successful children. I deserved even Christian children. I deserved children at all. There's a litany of things that we shake our fist at the Lord for that we think that we are owed and we are deserved. Now, why God gives some things and takes some things away, I don't know. But he is always good and wise to do so. And anything we have, including the very next beat of your heart, is only because of his grace, is only because of his kindness to you. 
So God then asks Jonah some rhetorical questions and then the book just ends. It's not a very satisfying story. It doesn't really follow the classic story arc that we intuitively love. If we're reading this for the first time, we're expecting Jonah to repent and to be the hero of the story, but Jonah is no hero. The book ends and therefore acts like a very clear mirror for us. You may have noticed we've been asking questions. What do we learn about God and what do we learn about ourselves? Not, not what do we learn about Jonah. What are we seeing about that is true about ourselves? Because we are Jonah. We can think that the gospel has found its end in us, individually or collectively. Perhaps as Americans, of course God would save me. I'm an American. My family has been American for generations. For generations and generations. Those folks over there, though, uh, those folks over on the other part of town that shop at different grocery stores than I do, and for sure those people on the other side of the planet that I don't ever have to think about, I don't have to worry about those folks, they're, they're, they're probably going to get what's coming to them. Well, they will if no one tells them the gospel. Just as we would have been had God not been so gracious to put others in our lives who would share the gospel with us. We are not owed anything. I and the death row murderer are both 11th hour workers who are owed nothing but receive generously. The specific call of Jonah to go and care for the nations then gets applied indirectly to all of us in the great commission from Jesus But most of us will not go to Nineveh. And we should be thankful to be a part of a church that is sending many to different parts of the world, to the the Nineveh of our day. But most of us will not go to Nineveh, but all of us should be concerned to mobilize and send those who do. But we are certainly naive to assume that we have to be in Nineveh to be on the mission field. When we begin to think about our neighbor as those who need the gospel to live, just as we do, then we can share openly with our friends, with our neighbors and our co-workers, with the words of the Assyrian king ringing in our ears, who knows, maybe God may turn and relent, which he will always do at true repentance. But here's the thing, while we don't have to go to Nineveh, this is an exciting time. Nineveh is coming to us. The United States has always been an immigrant nation, but what a time to be a Christian who shares God's love and care for the nations. You don't have to go anywhere. Get involved with DSC's ISI Thanksgiving dinner this year. You don't even have to have a passport. You just have to walk across the hall and meet someone from India or from China and share a dinner with them, become their friend, and invite them to your house. That's amazing. should, a right understanding of God and his grace should give us a great care and concern for the nations and our neighbors. But while we are all the bad parts about Jonah, luckily for him, luckily for Israel, luckily for us, in the New Testament we learn that there is one who succeeds where Jonah fails. What do we learn about the kingdom of God? That something greater than Jonah is here. Stay with me here, but in Matthew 12, the religious leaders, they come to Jesus demanding that he show them a sign, that he is a prophet from God. And this is how Jesus answers. And it's actually kind of strange. 
In Matthew 12, verse 39 and following, Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is Jesus saying? A whole lot. He's saying that he will be in the belly of the earth just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And it's true that it's just three days, three nights, but there's more to it than that. All throughout the Bible, one of the primary means of how, or one of the primary pictures that God shows judgment is through water. And this is certainly the case in Jonah. God's judgment is brewing. It's getting stronger and more chaotic at, at Jonah's disobedience. And it isn't until Jonah is thrown overboard that God's judgment is satisfied and the waters are calmed. It's then that he must rest and trust on the faithfulness of God and his rescue mission to the entire world that God then saves and preserves Jonah. Jonah says that God's judging waters were all around him in chapter 2. The waters were all around me. He was cut off from God, and yet God saved him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jesus says that this is what is coming. God is going to save the nations, not just one nation, one city, for a short period of time, but God is going to save people of every nation for all eternity. And he will do so through his faithful servant, his obedient prophet who will be plunged into the waters of God's judgment, completely cut off from God. And yet because of God's faithfulness to his servant, because of his faithfulness to Abraham to save the nations, because of his faithfulness to his own promises, God raised Jesus to new life. And this is why baptism by immersion is such a powerful symbol. Think about it, just Two weeks ago, there were people who came into the water and at risk of giving you a, weird, a very weird image of Ron, uh, Ron put them under the water and their lives were utterly in his hands. He was at, they were at his mercy. They were cut off from air, cut off from life and under the just judgment of their sin, under the waters. But just as on that Easter morning, Jesus opened his mouth and gulped in sweet, life-giving air and then opened his eyes, put his feet on the ground and walked out of the tomb to new life. Those baptized came up, they inhaled, they opened their eyes, they put their feet on the ground and walked out of the water. A symbolic showing of their cut-offness from God their right place of judgment, that they were not owed anything aside from his grace, aside from Jesus himself bearing the weight of their sin through his death and under the waters of God's judgment. Jesus succeeded as the true Israelite, unlike Jonah, Israel's man, in taking the good news to the poor, taking the good news to the weak, 
taking the good news to those who realized their sin, their rebellion, their distance from God. And the nations would come to believe, not just for a time, not just for a couple of years of Jesus' ministry, but continuing on until today, as it is still happening, as the nations are believing and worshiping him now and for all eternity. So Jonah asks us this book, It asks us, does does God's grace, a true and deep understanding of God's grace, motivate you outward towards those who don't believe? If not, like Jonah, is it possible that you don't actually understand and believe in God's grace? The ground is level at the foot of the cross, from the most powerful king in the world to some anonymous Gentile sailor. We will never know his name, perhaps until we meet him in glory. But God requires repentance, and he gives repentance by his overwhelmingly generous grace, which none of us are owed, but now motivates us outward. Let's ask for God's help. Our Father, we confess our sin. We confess that we, just like Jonah, we want to earn what we think that we are owed. Because of what we have done, we think that we are owed more. Because of what we, th- what we have done and what we have observed in others, we think that they are not owed what we are. Father, this is self-worship and we confess it. Father, would you cause our eyes and our worship to be less and less on ourself and more and more on your greatness, your grace to us shown in the work of Jesus on the cross. Might you release our grip on the things of this world and fix it on him. Father, might a deepening understanding of your grace cause us and motivate us and excite us to build relationships with and share the gospel with those who don't yet believe. We're so thankful to be a part of this church who is moving toward the nations, who is moving toward even states and native nations neighboring us. Father, would you continue to do a good work through your people here? Not so that we might have one more thing to put on our resume that we might be proud of, that we think that you might owe us more because of, but because of your great grace toward the nations that all might believe, let the nations praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. We pray for all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.